Hi, listeners. Many of you will be traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday. Whether you are flying, driving, or something else, please enjoy this collection of the first four episodes of The Last Word. When Death Seems Eminent, Death by Misadventure, Odd But Tragic, and This Is No Way to Live. Please check out the links to my Facebook page, email address, and listener sponsorship. Thank you in advance. Happy Thanksgiving, and go easy on the tryptophan. Welcome to The Last Word, an original True Life podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. Before eternity transfers us to the next plane of existence, many humans wish to unburden themselves of closely guarded secrets. Following the death of a relative last year, I took a beat to assess my life my views about death and what it all could mean. I came across this story, one of many, that inspired me to create this podcast. I was reminded that storytelling is unique to humans and sharing our experiences might be the most human thing we can do. I worked for a company where I saw many people in hospitals. I asked an elderly man why so many people near death were talkative. His answer became obvious to me after the fact. He said he was dying and realized what he would miss most of all in this world were the stories. It took me a while, I thought a lot about it, and realized just how powerful that statement was. His story, my story, and humanity's story. That was posted by VivLab144. Internet message boards are brimming with anonymous posts of people's last words. Medical personnel, police officers, and family members share stories of tawdry affairs, illegitimate children, and heartbreaking accounts of those left behind to tend the wounds created by these disclosures. 19th century composer Gustav Mahler lay in his bed conducting an imaginary orchestra, his devoted wife at his side. With his last breath, he cried, Mozart, Mozart. Trivial, perhaps, but it got the ball rolling on an idea. What is the significance of a person's last words? Last summer, I heard a podcast that addressed a rumor that Mozart was poisoned by his rival, Antonio Salieri. In his declining years, Salieri confessed he had murdered Mozart. This was followed by a failed suicide attempt. Later, Salieri referred to his confession as a rumor started by his enemies. The story sparked a question. If Salieri had not murdered Mozart, why did he confess to it and then attempt suicide? Compromised health and mental status or misplaced guilt for a professional rivalry pushed to the edge? Both seem plausible. Could confessing to the murder of a celebrated composer be less about wiping the slate and more about a final ploy at fame or infamy? Imagine for a moment that Mozart had died in the 1990s and Salieri had made his confession on a 21st century deathbed. In the U.S., a deathbed confession or declaration can be admitted as evidence in court and be used to reopen cold cases because it is presumed that a dying person is likely to speak the truth. It is a curiosity that some people have chosen to die with a lie on their lips. Just before she died at age 47, after years of battling addictions and health issues, famed French singer, songwriter, and actress Edith Piaf, known for La Vie en Rose and the anthem 
maintenant je ne regrette rien, which means no, I regret nothing, said every damn full thing you do in this life you pay for. Mexican revolutionary General Pancho Villa was assassinated in 1923. His famed last words were, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. However, after being struck in the head and chest with big game ammunition, it is unlikely he lived long enough to say anything. In this episode, I will attempt to answer two basic questions. What happens to a confession that is given when death seems imminent, but the person survives? How do deathbed confessions impact those left behind? Here are two cases of confessions made by people who believed death was imminent, but survived to face the consequences of their admissions. Tell me what you think of the first case. September 4th, 2010, Effingham, England. Tony Wakeford was losing his battle with Parkinson's disease. He knew the end was near and phoned his wife, Patricia. She listened as the love of her life confessed to having had an affair with her best friend, Penny DeSalis. Tony hung up the phone, believing those were the last words he would speak to his wife. Boy, was he wrong. Tony survived for several more years. Fragile, he was released into the care of his wife, Patricia. Imagine life at the Wakeford residence following the fateful phone confession. This revelation had a devastating effect on Mrs. Wakeford. She would want to know all the details and would question Mr. Wakeford. She became distressed and violent, both verbally and physically. There were episodes of anger directed towards her husband, often accompanied by binge drinking. Time had not healed Patricia's wounds. She found it impossible to accept that her childhood sweetheart had cheated on her with her best friend. The man who had broken her heart was endlessly dying and utterly dependent on her. She said it was a song on the radio that inspired her to pick the fight. Does anyone else wonder what song it was? In a vengeful rage, Patricia stabbed Tony multiple times all over his body. Patricia could be heard screaming, I hate you, I hate you, for 10 minutes. She was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter by an unlawful act. She received a 582-day sentence. Having already spent 291 days in prison, she was released for time served. Maybe the most dignified last words are selfless ones. The next case involves the deathbed confession of James Brewer. Following a second massive stroke in 2009, Brewer knew he was dying. He requested a visit from police. Brewer may not have realized that he was implicating his wife, Dorothy, as an accessory after the fact when he confessed to shooting a man in 1977. The motive? Lovesick revenge. Brewer believed his wife, Dorothy, had been seduced by their neighbor, James Carroll. An account of the murder was published by the Oklahoman. About 4 p.m. on April 27, 1977, James and Dorothy Brewer pulled up in front of a service station in Hohenwald, Tennessee. Carol was inside the store waiting for his mother to pick him up, Buey said. Carol learned Brewer wanted to talk to him, but friends warned the man as he approached Brewer's vehicle. Carol was shot twice, once in the abdomen, once below the left shoulder, with a handgun. After the shooting, Carol walked back into the store, fell down, and died at the scene, Buey said. He left him lying in a pool of blood, 
said Kilpatrick, the Lewis County, Tennessee sheriff. Living in Shawnee, Oklahoma, as Michael and Dorothy Anderson, several states between them and the scene of the crime, they became active members of their church and community. Their next door neighbor described them as a nice, loving couple and was shocked to learn of their dark past. An article published by the Oklahoman featured heartfelt words from Reverend Lawrence Guest, the pastor of the Brewers Church. They raised a daughter, babysat grandchildren, but didn't have much of a life outside of that. They've been in their own prison for the last 30 years. I think they've done their time. Jimmy Carroll's family disagrees. Brewer's return has triggered painful memories for the victim's family. They hold Brewer responsible for the murder and say he deserves no sympathy. They see his soul-cleansing confession and return to face charges as a second chance for justice. I never thought this day would come, Carol's sister said. Sheriff Kilpatrick said that some of the case information from 1977 has been lost to time, including murder charges against Dorothy and whether or not she was at the scene of Carol's murder. The victim's sister, Judy and Brenda Bowie, appeared in the article about the case, holding a picture of their brother, Jimmy. They spoke of alleged rumors that James wanted to kill Jimmy, who did not take the threat seriously. Brenda located an old newspaper archive and arrest records. Of Dolly, she said, that's a nickname for his wife, Dorothy. They drove up together at the station and they went there with the intention of killing him. She needs to face charges too. Brenda Bowie told the Oklahoman, that the Brewer couple showed no remorse at the hearing, nor did they attempt to speak to the Carroll family. When he died, Jimmy Carroll was the divorced father of twin five-year-old sons. Brenda said that her nephews barely remember their father. Brewer's health began to improve. He and Dorothy returned to Tennessee to face charges March 30th, 2009. James Brewer's bond was set at $150,000. His attorney doubted the family could raise the funds. Brewer, still recovering from his second stroke, was equipped with a feeding tube. Court records indicated a trial date had been set for Brewer's murder case, but was postponed until November 29th after an order was filed for a mental health evaluation, a court clerk said. In 2010, Dorothy was formally charged as an accessory to murder after the fact. Her warrant stated that she knew her husband was charged with murder and provided aid in the avoidance of arrest, trial, conviction, and punishment of James Brewer by leaving the state of Tennessee. The final outcome of the case has proven difficult to locate. It is possible there was no trial considering Brewer's poor health. March 13, 2017, just before the 40th anniversary of Jimmy Carroll's murder, the confessed killer died peacefully in his home. Did he have any last words this time? Did he regret that his confession implicated his wife, who allegedly tried to stop him in the middle of his confession to detectives? Did he feel remorse for taking the life of a young father? Jimmy Carroll's twin boys grew up without their father, while the Brewers started a new life in rural Oklahoma, free to raise their own child under assumed identities. Should the Brewers be shown leniency for their self-imposed exile? I would love to hear what you think. Have a little snack before you go. Here are a few more interesting accounts of last words. 
posted by Deleted. ER resident here. Guy came in with internal bleeding from blunt force trauma and looked at us and said, be excellent to each other. There is a popular thread concerning an unknown man's final words. He confessed to his wife that in the last 30 years, he had not loved her. Posted by Commercial Pilot, my great-grandmother went to bed one evening and didn't wake up for five days. When she awoke, she lifted her head, looked at her husband of 70 years and said softly, I've loved you for 70 years now and I would do it all over again. When asked if he had any final words, Karl Marx shouted, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Do you have a deathbed confession story or profound last words to share? I'd love to hear your thoughts and I look forward to sharing them in future episodes. According to Wikipedia, in the UK, death by misadventure is death attributed to an accident that occurred as the result of a voluntary risk. Examples include illicit drug overdose, accident, suicide, and homicide. Here comes the disclaimer. This episode contains accounts of deaths, none of them natural. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to The Last Word, a true life podcast that asks, what's the significance of a person's dying words and their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and on Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. Each episode, I will explore themes of lives and deaths, some well known. This episode, I begin an exploration of death by misadventure. Now back to the show. Recklessness versus experience. Most of us can relate to times when we did something risky and lived to tell the tale, and hopefully we gain some wisdom from our experiences. Others aren't lucky enough to survive their misadventures. Maybe Iggy Pop said it best, I've got a lust for life. Posted on Reddit by a paramedic. A young intoxicated man crashed his car. His last words were, so many sexy bitches at that party. A 30-year-old man attended a COVID party where he contracted COVID-19. Dying of the virus, he confessed to hospital staff that he had made a huge mistake because he believed the virus was a hoax. Major General Sir William Erskine, second baronet in the British Army, abruptly ended his life and his career when he jumped from a window in Lisbon. His last words, Now why did I do that? The ironic and disturbing last words of Jack Daniel were, one last drink, please. I wonder how many misadventures he had. June 4th, 2019, Victoria Buchanan, a 42-year-old teacher and mother of three, died after swallowing a $75 bag of cocaine before boarding a flight to Dubai. She swallowed the resealable bag in the first-class airport lounge with a glass of champagne. Moments later, the bag ruptured. She went into convulsions and died. Her death was officially recorded as a death by misadventure. Speaking at the inquest, Assistant Coroner Andrew Bridge said, 
My question is, what on earth was she thinking? Another example of what in the world was he thinking? 26-year-old Norwegian-American actor and model John Eric Hexham accidentally ended his life on October 12, 1984. On the set of his new TV series, Cover Up, Hexham entertained himself between takes by playing Russian roulette with a 44 revolver. Loaded with stage blinks, which he thought were harmless, he aimed the revolver at his temple and said, let's see if I've got one for me. Surgeons worked for five hours to repair his shattered skull, but could not save him. Something positive came from his tragic death, though. Five lives were saved because of John's commitment to organ donation. Save me, I don't want to die, were the reported last words of beloved 19-year-old Bollywood actress Divya Bharti following a fall from an open window on April 5, 1993. She later died in hospital. Rumors abounded that the reason for her death or suicide, accidental fall due to intoxication, or even the mafia. The results of the ensuing investigation determined that the fall was accidental, but her fans continued to be dissatisfied with this ruling. Om Prakash, Divya's father, stated in an interview, people talk about a lot of things. What actually happened? Only Divya and God know that. Vincent van Gogh, considered one of the great post-impressionist Dutch painters, was a painfully misunderstood person. He said, what would life be if we had no courage to attempt anything? France, January 1891. In a climax of despair over his life and the world around him, van Gogh shot himself but lingered for several days. When found wounded in his bed, he allegedly said, I shot myself. I only hope I haven't botched it. What I have done is nobody else's business. I'm free to do what I like with my own body. He died two days later. Followed in death by his brother Theo six months later, the brothers are buried side by side in a little cemetery in Auvergne. He was 37, the same age as the man in my next story. International rock star, songwriter, and actor Michael Hutchins, perhaps known for his powerful and sultry vocals with the Australian group In Excess, said, I'm very happy I've got to this stage in my life and I'm not dead. November 22, 1997, Michael was found dead at age 37 in his Sydney hotel room. His death was reported to be asphyxiation by hanging. Those closest to him protested that Michael would not have committed suicide. The reason behind his death is undetermined. His final words were scratched onto a yellow notepad, but not made public for 20 years. The night of his death, he had had a heated phone call regarding a blocked custodial visit with his daughter, Tiger Lily. Wouldn't be right to take it, wouldn't be right laying down. Sick of the dogs outside my window. That's right, take a look. New plan with a hook, stuck into me. All the bitterness has started showing. Five years, no one hears. Five years earlier, Michael was in a violent altercation with a taxi driver in Copenhagen. The incident resulted in a traumatic brain injury which robbed him of his senses of taste and smell, a fact he kept secret from the world. No doubt this left him feeling isolated and depressed, among other things. 
It's just as difficult to live in a self-made hell of privacy as it is to live in a self-made hell of publicity, Michael said once. There is a memorial website run by his family and close friends. The following was posted there by his older sister, Tina Hutchins. We can all hope to be remembered with such love. He was a charming person. When Michael engaged you in conversation at a party, you felt that you were the only person in the room. And that is rare in a business and a climate and an age where most people are looking around the room to see who might be more famous. He could make anyone, male or female, feel that she or he was the most fascinating person he had ever met. That was his power. It was not a put-on. He was genuinely interested in everybody he met. He had that special quality that made a room light up with his presence. I feel fortunate to have known him from day one. Five years earlier, Michael was in a violent altercation with a taxi driver in Copenhagen. The incident resulted in a traumatic brain injury, which robbed him of his senses of taste and smell, a fact he kept secret from the world. No doubt this left him feeling isolated and depressed, among other things. It's just as difficult to live in a self-made hell of privacy as it is to live in a self-made hell of publicity, Michael said. There is a memorial website run by his family and close friends. The following was posted there by his older sister, Tina Hutchins. We can all hope to be remembered with such love. He was a charming person. When Michael engaged you in conversation at a party, you felt that you were the only person in the room. And that is rare in a business and a climate and age where most people are looking around the room to see who might be more famous. He could make anyone, male or female, feel that she or he was the most fascinating person he had ever met. That was his power. It was not a put-on. He was genuinely interested in everyone he met. He had a special quality that made a room light up with his presence. I feel fortunate to have known him from day one. I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. From those two lines, you already know who I'm talking about. Prince Rogers Nelson was born and raised in Minneapolis, considered a musical virtuoso, a social icon, and an artistic genius. He came from meager beginnings, but never gave up. His semi-autobiographical 1984 rock opera, Purple Rain, propelled him into stardom. The movie gave Americans something we treasure, a Cinderella story. A young musician's search for success and love garnered him an Academy Award. True, some of us were forbidden to watch his movie or listen to his music because of their explicit themes. Personally, I had a secret Purple Rain cassette hidden in my room. At school, my friends and I would whisper about the lyrics. On the weekends, we would try to catch Purple Rain on HBO when our parents were out having drinks at the lounge. Were we corrupted by it? Of course not. Ruination of America's youth was never Prince's goal. From his memoir, The Beautiful Ones, we are given a taste of what it was all about for him. If I want this book to be about one overarching thing, it's freedom, and the freedom to create autonomously, without anyone telling you what to do, 
how, or why. Start by creating your day, then create your life. In 2016, Prince's flight was forced to make an emergency landing where he was hospitalized briefly for what his representative said was the flu. Soon after, Prince made an appearance at a local dance party near his Paisley Park home in Minneapolis. Regarding his health, he said to the crowd, Wait a few days before you waste any prayers. It would be his last appearance. Five days later, Prince died of an accidental fentanyl overdose. The news of his death shocked the world. From President Obama to Lionel Richie and Justin Timberlake, who said, Numb, stunned, this can't be real. Justin Timberlake was able to pay tribute to his icon at the 2018 Super Bowl in Prince's hometown of Minneapolis. Personally, I danced in triumph and cried sentimental tears when I watched the performance. And when I read the note he sent to Bruno Mars, I broke down. Bruno, may your only heroes be God and yourself. Peace and be wild. One last quote from Prince. Compassion is an action word. No boundaries. Recently, someone asked me if I found the research for and the content of this podcast depressing. Yes, of course. But I don't write about dying words out of morbid fascination with death or insensitivity to loss of life. I do it out of compassion for the human condition and to shed light on the actions of mankind with the hopes that someone somewhere will be inspired to live up to the plot of their own lives. Here's a sneak peek at my next episode, Odd But Tragic. In 2013, a Brazilian man was killed in his sleep when a cow fell through his roof. In 1979, an assembly line worker at Ford named Robert Williams was killed by a robotic arm, making him the first human to be killed by a robot. Finally, the inventor of the Segway was killed in 2010 when he accidentally drove his Segway off a cliff. If nothing else, friends, I hope that you will all remember to make each day worth living. Thanks for listening to The Last Word, a true life podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. See you next time. From his memoir, The Beautiful Ones, we are given a taste of what it was all about for him. If I want this book to be about one overarching thing, it's freedom and the freedom to create autonomously without anyone telling you what to do or how or why. Start by creating your day, then create your life. In April 2016, Prince's flight was forced to make an emergency landing where he was hospitalized briefly for what his representative said was the flu. Soon after, Prince made an appearance at a local dance party near his Paisley Park home in Minneapolis. Regarding his health, he said to the crowd, wait a few days before you waste any prayers. It would be his last appearance. Five days later, Prince died of an accidental fentanyl overdose. The news of his death shocked the world. From President Obama to Lionel Richie and Justin Timberlake, who said, numb, stunned, this can't be real. Justin Timberlake was able to pay tribute to his icon at the 2018 Super Bowl in Prince's hometown of Minneapolis. I personally danced in triumph and cried sentimental tears when I watched the performance. And when I read the note he sent to Bruno Mars, I broke down. Bruno, may your only heroes be God and yourself. 
peace and be wild. Here's my last quote from Prince. Compassion is an action word with no boundaries. Recently, someone asked me if I found the research for and the content of this podcast depressing. Yes, of course, but I don't write about dying words of morbid fascination with death or insensitivity to loss of life. I do it out of compassion for the human condition and to shed light on the actions of mankind with the hopes that someone somewhere will be inspired to live up to the plot of their own lives. Here's a sneak peek at my next episode odd but tragic. In 2013, a Brazilian man was killed in his sleep when a cow fell through his roof. In 1979, an assembly line worker at Ford named Robert Williams was killed by a robotic arm, making him the first human to be killed by a robot. Finally, the inventor of the Segway was killed in 2010 when he accidentally drove his Segway off of a cliff. If nothing else, friends, I hope that you will all remember to make each day worth living. Thanks for listening to The Last Word, a true life podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. See you next time. Welcome back to The Last Word, a true life podcast that asks, What is the significance of a person's dying words, and what is their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. Each episode, I will explore themes of life and death. Some stories may be well-known to you, others may not. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and on Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. This episode, I'm looking at odd but tragic deaths. Now for the disclaimer. This episode contains accounts of unnatural deaths, including suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I'm also providing the toll-free number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you or someone you know needs support for thoughts of suicide, please call 1-800-273-8255. Professionals are there to help 24-7, always confidential and no cost to you. Now, back to the show. Our first story doesn't have any final words from the victims, but was too odd and tragic to overlook. Buenos Aires, 1988. A poodle named Cachi was playing on the balcony of the Montoya's 13th floor apartment when he slipped through the guardrail and fell on the head of a passerby. 75-year-old Marta Espina and the poodle died instantly, but it doesn't end there. The 46-year-old Edith Sola was across the street and witnessed the accident. Without thinking, she ran into traffic and was struck and killed by a bus. An unidentified man who had just emerged from the pharmacy witnessed the three deaths, suffered a heart attack, and died on the way to the hospital, bringing the death toll to four, counting the poodle. If that's the most bizarre thing you've ever heard, keep listening. Predestination is a tenant of the Presbyterian faith. According to the last words of our next tragic victim, destiny may have played a role in his death. Ohio statesman Clement Laird Van Dauenheim had a colorful past, including being dismissed from Jefferson College without a degree, following a dispute with the college president, and exile by President Lincoln to the Confederate South, Bermuda, and Canada. 
1871, the war was over and Val was a middle-aged lawyer in Ohio. He represented Thomas McGeehan, a man accused of fatally shooting Tom Myers during a barroom brawl. Convinced of his client's innocence, he chose to demonstrate that Myers had shot himself while withdrawing his pistol from a kneeling position. Allegedly, Val was warned by his fellow defense attorneys that the pistol he carried in his pocket contained three rounds and he should discharge them lest he suffer an unwanted injury. He scoffed and assured his colleagues he was in no danger. He knelt and withdrew the pistol from his pocket as he recreated the events and, you guessed it, shot himself in the abdomen. My God, I've shot myself! Twelve hours later, on his deathbed, he confessed, I am a firm believer in that good old Presbyterian doctrine of predestination. His demonstration proved his theory, and his client was acquitted and released, only to be fatally shot four years later in another saloon shootout. That sounds like a whole lot of destiny. Austrian-born Franz Reichelt was a Parisian tailor with big dreams of inventing a wearable parachute. In an era when the Wright brothers had achieved aviation success, Franz was convinced his suit would allow aviators to glide to a safe landing when bailing out of their crafts mid-air. Armed with turn-of-the-century ambition and a knowledge of clothing design, he was determined to prove his suit's efficacy. He succeeded with a dummy from the fifth floor of his apartment building. After repeated petitions to the Paris police prefecture to test his invention, he was granted permission to test his invention with a dummy from the first platform of the Eiffel Tower. On February 4th, 1912, Franz arrived at the Eiffel Tower and announced he intended to perform a live jump. He could not be dissuaded by friends or authorities. He told the press he would prove that his parachute was perfectly safe and had no need for safety tethers. To the Paris Times, Franz said, I want to try the experiment myself without trickery, as I intend to prove the worth of my invention. Two days prior, on a whim, an American named Frederick Law had successfully parachuted from the viewing platform of Lady Liberty's torch. His chute opened before he hit the ground. He limped away carrying his 100-pound parachute and declined to be interviewed by the press. Perhaps Law's success influenced Franz's choice to attempt the perilous jump. A guard blocked his entrance to the platform, which led to an argument. You are going to see how my 72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials. Franz was shaken up by the argument, but was permitted to pass. With a cinematographer and friends in tow, he turned and waved to the crowd of about 30 journalists and curious spectators. A bientôt, see you soon, were his last words. At 8.22 a.m., he tore a piece of paper from a book and released it into the stiff, chilly breeze. He placed one foot on the guardrail, hesitated for half a minute, smiled, and then leapt. His parachute failed to deploy, and he fell 187 feet onto the frozen lawn below. Newspapers reported that his right arm and leg, skull, and spine had been crushed by the fall. He died with his eyes open wide in an expression of shock. Side note, video exists of the jump, though I have not watched it. The press dubbed him the reckless inventor. He was only 33. Larry Walters, 
also known as Lawn Chair Larry, was the pilot of Inspiration One, an aircraft of his own design. Larry Walters had a lifelong dream of aviation, but his poor eyesight prevented him from becoming a pilot in the U.S. Air Force. An idea 20 years in the making, Larry dreamt up a plan to rig weather balloons filled with helium to a lightweight garden variety lawn chair. His girlfriend, Carol Van Dusen, helped Larry obtain 45 eight-foot weather balloons and helium from a party supply store using a fake letter from Film Flare Studios that claimed the supplies were for a commercial they were shooting. Larry attached the balloons to a lawn chair and filled them with helium. He strapped on a parachute and secured himself to the chair with belts. For communication, he had a CB radio, and to facilitate a soft landing, he was armed with a pellet gun to pop the balloons. Ready to live out his childhood dream of being a pilot, he brought a camera along, but later admitted he was too excited to take one picture. He also brought refreshments, sandwiches, and cold beer. That's right, the lawn chair pilot brought beer on his maiden voyage. For me, that speaks to his credibility as an inventor and a navigator. More of a juvenile joyride with no awareness of danger or consequences than a great inventor taking to the skies. That would soon change. On July 2nd, 1982, from his backyard in San Pedro, California, Larry's friends cut the ropes that tethered Inspiration One to his Jeep. Larry and his chair rose rapidly to 15,000 feet. Video exists of his liftoff. In it, his girlfriend pleads with him to come back, that everyone wants him to come back because he dropped his glasses. He replied that he was not ready to come back, and he brought a spare pair of glasses with him. The altitude must have cleared away the euphoria and filled him with a large dose of reality. Larry found himself unable to navigate and afraid to shoot out any of the balloons. His plans for simple navigation and a soft landing seemed less than well thought out. After 45 minutes aloft, he shot out several of the balloons, then dropped his pellet gun. He drifted into Long Beach Airport airspace. With his CB, he radioed to his friends on the ground that he was okay and to contact the airport of the situation. A TWA pilot radioed the tower that he was passing a man in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. The dangling rope tethers became entangled in some power cords, which led to a 20-minute blackout in a Long Beach neighborhood. Larry abandoned Inspiration One and climbed down to the ground where the police were waiting for him. He was arrested and fined $4,000 for violating airspace. The fine was later reduced to $1,500. When a journalist asked why he'd done it, Larry replied, I had this dream for 20 years. If I hadn't done it, I would have ended up in the funny farm. A man can't just sit around. I wonder if the rest of that sentence was, can't just sit around on the ground, but we should have the right to sit around in the sky with beer and sandwiches. Larry's stunt gained momentum and propelled him into infamy. He received top prize from the Dallas Bonehead Award, a Darwin Award in 1993, and appeared on The Tonight Show and The David Letterman Show, where he said his two-hour lawn chair voyage was the most fun he'd ever had. Later, the TV show Mythbusters recreated the voyage of Inspiration One. The navigator was airborne for 30 minutes before shooting down the balloons with a pellet gun. Larry saw his aviation endeavor, 
endeavor as the culmination of a 20-year dream. He never wanted to be the butt of jokes. He quit his job as a truck driver and briefly worked as a spokesperson for Timex, appeared on several game shows, and gave motivational speeches, though he never achieved much financial success. He parted ways with his longtime girlfriend. He volunteered with the U.S. Forest Service and began working as a security guard. Larry gave away his lawn chair to a neighborhood kid named Jerry. He later regretted this decision when the Smithsonian asked him to donate the chair. Twenty years later, a man conducting research for a website about the historical flight located Jerry and the chair, which had been sitting in his garage, rope tethers intact. October 6, 1993, Larry Walters hiked into the Los Angeles National Forest and shot himself in the chest. His family said they knew of no motive for his suicide. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He never married and had no children. He was survived by his sister and mother. He was 44 years old. Thornton Jones, a lawyer in Bangor, Wales, awoke to discover his throat was slit. Motioning for a pencil and paper, he wrote, I dreamt that I had done it. I awoke to find it true. An article published in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star read, Evidence that he may have cut his own throat was given at an inquest. He lived 80 minutes after the infliction of the wound, during which time it was stated he cried out to his wife and son, Forgive me, forgive me. The inquest ruled his death is suicide while temporarily insane. Today it might be ruled an act of automatism or a brief unconscious involuntary act. Something I noticed in my research, there is a long list of performers who have died of heart attacks on stage. Stress, poor diet, pre-existing conditions. Heart attacks are unplanned, often unexpected, and not deliberate. Still, there is a much shorter list of people who have shot themselves in front of a live audience. Before I illuminate this list, I must ask, what possesses someone to commit such a spectacular act of violence? If I witnessed something like that, no doubt I'd be traumatized for life. When we purchase a ticket or turn on the news, we never expect to see someone commit such an act. I am torn between pitying these individuals and resenting their reckless final acts and how they harmed innocent onlookers. Emil Hosda was a comic actor in Poland. On April 11, 1904, Hosda took six curtain calls following his performance of the hit play, The Twin Sister. During curtain calls, he proposed marriage to a fellow cast member. When she rejected him, he came back onto the stage and shot himself in the head. The armchair psychiatrist in me says Mr. Hosda valued his ego above the gift of his own life and obvious talents. Blowing out your brains in front of the audience that has just lauded you has to be one of the most egotistical, selfish, unstable, and reckless things I have ever heard. Not to mention weak. As for the actress in question, she literally and figuratively dodged a bullet when she said no to this unstable man. I wish I knew what the aftermath of this action was, but nothing else has been written about it. Politician R. Bud Dwyer served as the 30th treasurer of Pennsylvania from January 1981 through January 1987. After being convicted of 11 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, 
perjury and interstate transportation in aid of racketeering, he faced a prison sentence of up to 55 years. State law prevented Dwyer from being removed as treasurer before his sentencing. January 22, 1987, he called for a press conference where his colleagues believed he would publicly resign his position. The following is a note written by Dwyer the night before the press conference. I enjoy being with Joe so much. The next 20 years or so would have been wonderful. Tomorrow is going to be so difficult. I hope I can go through with it. On the morning of January 23, 1987, in Harrisburg, Dwyer began reading from a 21-page prepared statement. Before completing the last page, Dwyer went off script and continued his pleas of innocence. These are his final words. I've repeatedly said that I'm not going to resign as state treasurer. After many hours of thought and meditation, I've made a decision that should not be an example to anyone because it is unique to my situation. Last May, I told you after the trial, I would give you the story of the decade. To those of you who are shallow, the events of this morning will be that story. But to those of you with depth and concern, the real story will be what I hope and pray results from this morning in the coming months and years, the development of a true justice system here in the United States. I am going to die in office in an effort to see if the shameful facts spread out in all their shame will not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to the American pride. Please tell my story on every radio and television station and in every newspaper and magazine in the U.S. Please leave immediately if you have a weak stomach or mind, since I don't want to cause physical or mental distress. Joanne, Rob, Didi, I love you. Thank you for making my life so happy. Goodbye to all of you on the count of three. Please make sure that the sacrifice of my life is not in vain. Dwyer had hidden a 357 Magnum in an envelope under the podium. When he had finished speaking, he removed the gun and said, Please leave the room if this will affect you. He inserted the barrel of the gun into his mouth and pulled the trigger. Sitting in the front row was Frederick L. Cusick, a friend of Dwyer's and a journalist. Years later, he was quoted by the L.A. Times. I should have run and grabbed him when he pulled out the envelope. I knew what it was. An edited version of the event was later aired by the media, but contrary to the urban legend, it was never broadcast live. Here's the aftermath of Bud Dwyer's death. In 2010, a documentary called Honest Man, The Life of R. Bud Dwyer was released. It featured an interview with William T. Smith, a former committee chairman and witness in Dwyer's trial. In it, he admits that he lied under oath about having offered a bribe to Dwyer with the intention of not implicating himself and his wife for their roles in the bribery conspiracy. He expressed his regret for the role his perjured testimony played in Dwyer's final act. I can hardly believe there is a second tale like this one. Christine Chubbuck grew up in Hudson, Ohio with her parents and two brothers. She obtained a degree in broadcasting from Boston University in 1965. In the early 1970s, she was hired as a reporter for WXLT in Columbia, South Carolina. 
She took her work seriously, which caught the attention of the station's owner, who gave her a morning show called Suncoast Digest that discussed community affairs like alcoholism, drug users, and other taboo issues. Christine had a history of battling depression and was seeing a psychiatrist for help. She attempted suicide in 1970 through drug overdose. Her family was aware of her battle with depression and suicidal ideations. The stigma of mental health struggles stopped her mother from informing Christine's employer for fear that her daughter would lose her position at the station. Christine told her family that she felt unable to connect with people and had not dated anyone for years. She lamented to her co-workers that her 30th birthday was approaching and she was still a virgin who had only dated two men. One of those men had died in a car accident, which greatly impacted her. In 1973, she had an ovary removed and was told that if she did not become pregnant in the next several years, that the odds of ever conceiving were slim. She told a news editor she worked with that she had bought a gun and was going to kill herself on air. Her colleague dismissed her remarks as a sick joke and changed the subject. On July 15, 1974, Christine arrived at the studio but made a slight change to her routine by reading the headlines at the news desk while her guests waited on the other side of the studio. After spending eight minutes reading national news, she moved on to a story about a local shooting from the previous day. When the newsreel would not play, it is said that Christine shrugged it off and said, In keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts in living color, you are going to see another first, an attempted suicide. She reached under the desk and pulled out a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver and shot herself behind the right ear. Concerned viewers called the studio to ask if the scene had been staged. Christine never shared with her family her plan to attempt suicide on live television. Her mother stated, It was simply because her personal life was not enough. That statement diminishes the poor woman's struggle with mental health. The station manager obtained the script from which Christine had been reading. Her on-air suicide attempt was scripted in, as well as a statement to be read by whichever colleague took over for her. In her script, Christine labeled her condition as critical. She was rushed to Sarasota Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where, in 1968, she had volunteered organizing puppet shows for children with learning disabilities. She died 14 hours later. Presbyterian minister Thomas Beeson delivered her eulogy. We suffer at our sense of loss. We are frightened by her rage. We are guilty in the face of her rejection. We are hurt by her choice of isolation, and we are confused by her message. I wonder if anyone believed that this was Christine's Presbyterian predestiny. Two films have been made about Christine and her death. Speaking recently to The Sun, Christine's brother Greg said, Of course the fact that she was a virgin and a spinster will be their focus. Her boyfriend, who died in a car accident, was in his early 20s, and Christine was still a teenager. The second was with a man who also worked in television. Her brother went on to say, She moved to Pittsburgh to be with him, but the relationship fell apart because my dad was vociferously opposed to him. He was older, and my dad did not want her to marry a Jewish man. 
He said that he worked hard to prevent any films about Christine's death being produced while his mother was living and that he would not see either film. He stated that the focus on her lack of romantic life diminishes her struggles with mental health instead of raising awareness for suicide prevention. He also said that his parents had spent a fortune trying to figure out why their gorgeous, beautiful, brilliant daughter didn't react the same as everyone else. He now believes that his sister suffered from bipolar disorder, which was not well understood in the 1970s. Public suicide is another level beyond suicide, he says. It's an anger and rage that I can't understand, and I've thought about it every day for 42 years. There's nothing glorious about suicide or what it does to the people who loved the person. It goes without saying that Christine's violent act was a cry for help. Again, if you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. The Lifeline provides free confidential support 24-7. On a more positive note, the president recently signed into law a designated suicide prevention phone number, 988. It is scheduled to go live September 2021. In the meantime, call 1-800-273-8255 for free, round-the-clock support. I hope that you will all remember to make each day worth living. In my next episode, I will explore the last words of people who face their last moments with humor and wisdom. Thank you for listening to The Last Word, a true life podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. See you next time. The famous last words of Brazilian poet Alavo Bilac were, Give me coffee, I'm going to write. I wonder if my last words will be, I'm writing without coffee, I hope it doesn't kill me. Welcome back to The Last Word, a true life podcast that asks, What is the significance of a person's dying words, and what is their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. Each episode, I will explore themes of life and death. Some stories may be well known to you, others may not. In this episode, I'm looking at the lighter side of death and coffee. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and on Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. In one of his last interviews, American comedian and master of quick wit Groucho Marx suggested an epitaph for his gravestone. Excuse me, I can't stand up. On aging, he once said, anyone can get old. All you have to do is live long enough. In the early 1970s, he met Elton John. Marx made imaginary pistols with his fingers and pointed them at John, who held up his hands in surrender. Don't shoot, I'm only the piano player. In August 1977, Marx was hospitalized with pneumonia where he said, this is no way to live. He never recovered. In 2017, a teenager named Davis Allen Kripe consumed a caffeinated energy drink, a large Mountain Dew, and a latte from McDonald's. The otherwise healthy teen died of what the coroner called a caffeine-related cardiac event brought on by arrhythmia. He was careful to point out that the cause of death was not a caffeine overdose. Caffeine overdoses are rare. Of 26 reported cases, 14 of those led to death. 
There's the case of a 19-year-old named James Stone who died after consuming 24 no-dose tablets. There was the prom king, Logan Steiner of Ohio, who died after ingesting a large dose of caffeine powder days before his high school graduation. An autopsy revealed that he had three and a half times the lethal dose in his system. Steiner, a successful high school wrestler, was believed to have consumed the powder as part of his wrestling pre-workout routine. Caffeine toxicity can lead to nausea and vomiting, which is the body's way of stopping one from overdosing. Lethal doses of caffeine are rare and usually occur from powder or tablet forms and not beverages. ABC's timeless cop dramedy, Barney Miller, brought the fictional yet realistic 12th precinct into the world's living rooms from 1975 to 1982. The series was considered by police officers to be the most realistic cop show on TV. They worked hard to address heavy social issues of the time, poverty, high crime rates, the energy crisis, and equal rights, all delivered with little on-air violence. Second in command, Detective Nick Yamana, was played by Japanese-American comic actor and singer Jack Sue. Born Goro Suzuki in 1917 on a ship traveling across the Pacific, his parents left Oakland, California for Japan, hoping their first child would be born in their former homeland. Decades later, after surviving life in an internment camp during World War II and discovering that humor made life more bearable, he went into entertainment and adopted the stage name Jack Sue. His final role was Detective Nick Yamana, the deadpan sidekick to Captain Miller. He was armed with an endless supply of trivia, sardonic comebacks, and a filing system that made sense to no one but him. His legendary coffee was bad to the last drop. In 1979, prior to completing season five, Sue was losing his battle with esophageal cancer. Before he was wheeled into surgery to remove a cancerous tumor, Sue said, maybe it was the coffee. Never officially killed off the series, he would occasionally be referred to with fondness by the other characters. The cast did an out-of-character memorial episode, Jack Sue, A Retrospective. Hal Linden, who played Captain Miller, admitted that the show would go on, but the absence of Sue's comedic genius would make it difficult. In the final scene of the tribute episode, the cast raised their coffee mugs in honor of their colleague. When the series ended in 1982, the Squad Room's chalkboard roster was donated to the Smithsonian Television Museum. In addition to the characters' names, the board listed the names of technicians who worked on the show. The Smithsonian also has the police badges used by the actors and Jack Sue's coffee mug. Before I wrote this episode, I watched about two and a half seasons of Barney Miller. I remember seeing the reruns as a kid. I knew it was a fun show, but I rarely got the jokes. Two decades into the 21st century, I'm impressed and relieved that the late 70s sitcom stood the test of time. The writing, themes, and acting had me laughing out loud and weighing how the world has reacted to and adopted ideals that were emerging during post-Vietnam recession America. I have even developed a little crush on the character Detective Sergeant Arthur Dietrich. Tall and confident with a deep voice and more knowledgeable than a liberal college professor, his most famous quote seems to be, honesty is the best policy, but insanity might be the best defense. Derek Jarman 
was an English filmmaker, artist, writer, gardener, and author. A longtime advocate for gay rights, in December 1986, he announced to the public he was HIV positive. The disease would rob him of his eyesight, save the color blue. He named his final film after the remaining color. In 1993, he released his final film, Blue. Months later, he succumbed to an AIDS-related illness in London. Jarman said, I want the world to be filled with white, fluffy duckies. Each time I read that sentence, I can't help but close my eyes and imagine it. From a Reddit user, my dad had a heart attack in the shower. He died while we waited 45 minutes for an ambulance to travel two miles. His last words were, I always knew I'd be bollocks naked when I died. My life was effing brilliant. Thomas B. Moran was a career pickpocket who reportedly stole upwards of 50,000 wallets. His slick ways earned him the nickname Butterfingers. Moran died in Miami in 1971. His last words were, I've never forgiven that smart aleck reporter who named me Butterfingers. To me, it's not funny. Let's agree to disagree, Mr. Moran. October 2000, Charles Gussman was a TV announcer who wrote popular radio dramas before transitioning to television. He penned the pilot episode of Days of Our Lives as well as episodes of Gilligan's Island and Search for Tomorrow. When he became ill, he said he wanted his last words to be memorable. Later, when his daughter reminded him of this, he removed his oxygen mask and whispered, and now for a final word from our sponsor. Oh, thank you. Internationally acclaimed drummer Buddy Rich was being prepped for surgery in 1987, a procedure from which he did not recover. His nurse asked, is there anything you can't take? Rich replied, yeah, country music. Following a dispute over how to properly grease a scoop shovel, James W. Rogers shot and killed a co-worker. He was sentenced to death by firing squad in Utah. Asked if he had a last request, he replied, Bring me a bulletproof vest. His execution was the last in the U.S. following the suspension of capital punishment by the Supreme Court, which was reinstated in 1976. Donald O'Connor was a singer, dancer, and actor known for his role in Singing in the Rain. He also hosted the Academy Awards in 1954. O'Connor died at age 78 with his family gathered around him. He joked, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. He still hasn't received one. Considered Australia's most eccentric composer, Percy Granger was a proponent of free music and folk music revival, disliked by many for his views on just about everything. His last words were for his wife, Ella, you're the only one I like. As Alfred Hitchcock lay dying, he was asked if he wished to be visited by a priest, to which he replied, One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. Beloved American actor Michael Landon, best known for Little House on the Prairie and Highway to Heaven, succumbed to cancer in 1991, surrounded by his family. When his son told him it was time to move on, Landon said, you're right. It's time. I love you all. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Last Word.